This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So here's the second of our special live shows from the Edinburgh Fringe. There should have been three, but we only have two because, well, I had a senior moment. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Do you know what? If I have another bit of oh. this tablet. There's no reversing it down your throat. Oh my god. Oh. You have to sugar. I mean, it's just like, it's just like, you might as well just. Go into a restaurant, dig your hand in a bowl of sugar, and go, 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 go. I mean, it's disgusting. And I've hardly had anything to eat all day. And oh it, my God, you're more wired than ever. I am on sugar and caffeine and nothing else. That's okay. I've got a confession to make. What? Well, that's not good to hear that. Copped up the recording of the second show. You have a fucking laugh. No. Wait, so it didn't record. So. We're not able to put it out. You are. I'm not. Seriously? Yeah. I'm, I'm, no, I know. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. I know this sounds like one of my wind-ups. It's not one of my wind-ups. We, we had a technical problem, so it's, it's a shame because it was such a great show last that night. That was my best effort. It's downhill now. I know, I know. And Joe Caulfield and Jack Doherty were absolutely brilliant. And so was I. I, I'm sure you, and also we got your Fanny Craddock joke in. Oh, George. And that, that, oh, will, that, will, never be, that will never be heard. Uh, Unless you'd like to share it with us. Oh, I can't remember it. At all your... No, no, you, you've got to build this up. Come on. The whole thing is Fanny Craddock and her husband, Johnny, used to have a cookery show and Johnny used to finish off the show by smiling at the camera and saying to the audience, make sure all your donuts are like Fanny's. No. Sounds all right, this is. <laughs> He would say, I hope all your donuts turn out like fannies. That's what he used to say. <laughs> it's all in there. Yes, sorry. It sorry. worked well last night. It worked better last night. I've just hogged up a bit. <laughs> it's all hills in Edinburgh. I'm sweating. Um, well, anyway, so last night tonight, um, it's a sellout, actually. Seriously? It is. Oh, my God. It's quite thought. funny. Have you seen it downstairs? There's actually a, a young person who is out there, and they have to stand with a big board saying, Q for Key Adams. <laughs> That's quite nice, actually. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Give me a kick in or something. So, how how are you feeling? Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Right. Okay. This is yeah. not really inspiring me. Sorry, I'm still good thinking about the, the recording. Yeah. Um, uh, how am I feeling? Well, I just like to say last night was so good. It's given me hope that tonight will be even better. Great. Well, so, we, we do yeah, have yeah, great guests. I'm really excited. We've got Sir Ian Rankin. I know, I know, Ooh, I know. I forgot he was a sir. Yep, and uh, Denise Miner, who's yeah. also a fabulous crime writer. So we've got crime writing um, royalty. And um, how's your sticky bra holding up? <laughs> I know, they're falling back. They're, they're going from perch to pendulum. <laughs> oh, great, you're finally admitting that, are you? <laughs> oh, it's quite disappointing. It's quite disappointing. Have you been using that same sticky bra? Oh, it's a shit. You can't put it in the wash. No, I know, but 
how long does it last? How long does the stick? It's a great day. Three nights. It's absolutely. Per- I have to say, you looked sensational last night. It's really nice of you. You almost lost my voice. No, you have those beautiful coral pants. I mean, maybe it looked as if you were trying a bit too hard. Do you think? Uh, next to you. Yeah, because you I, made I, no effort. No, no, because I keep telling you, I'm media trendy. I'm dressed need to down media trendy. Yeah. yeah, you did actually look good. I'll give you this. No, no, you, you're. Uh, you've got a velour are, top on tonight. I haven't. I'll tell you, I'm going to regret that because it's bloody hot in there. I know, you've not got a t shirt. Oh, no, I wish I did. Hey, I wish it's I did. boiling outside I know, as well. I know, I know. That entire audience will be fanning themselves. <laughs> Fan, fan, fan. We have a wee oscillating fan on their shoulder, each one of them. I know. I was going to wear my lucky pink suit, but I thought it might be unlucky because it went well on the first night and I was wearing my pink suit and then I started to call it my lucky pink suit. And I think, well, if I wear my lucky pink suit again, then that might be unlucky and it might turn into my unlucky pink suit. Well, given that you didn't wear it last night and we lost the recording, I'd have been putting it back on tonight. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Mm. Oh, Jesus Christ. I had a good sleep last night. Oh, my God, I meant to ask you this. Oh, I had a lovely sleep. How many hours? Oh, at least eight. Gorgeous. That's good. That's good. And did you have a nice night? What have you been doing today? Um, I met a friend for lunch. There's a really annoying duo here. I met a friend for lunch at 12.15 until sort of half past one and then I met my friend Julian and Stephen and then we went to see an exhibition, Grace and Perry, smash hits. I really want to see that. I think Slip it needed more than an hour. I told you that. I know but I wasn't going to waste my tickets. No, 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 no. But I think, I mean, I, I had friends who went to see it and they said you need at least two, two and a half hours. To I didn't know it. I'd be expected to be here two hours before we go on stage. Well, I mean, Chris, you're on stage in front of three, it's a sellout. In Didn't front of either. with 250, 300 people, Thanks. we're Thanks. on, we're on air. I was going to say we're on at five thirty, mm. and and I've got to be texting you to be here at four <laughs> fifteen because you think I, that's a bit, yeah, you know. yeah. And I got the word that you were in the lock bar, shut up there, no sign, because we'd already come down here because we were too, we were told we can't hang about here in the bar any longer. We've got to get down. We've got to get down to get ready to prepare. John <sighs> Actually, <laughs> now, do you know what? I'm just thinking for the purposes of this, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we should explain the whole rhubarb gin and tablet and actually monster courgette thing because people will hear that when they listen to the interviews, but because they don't hear our preamble, because we cut that out from the recording, they won't know what the hell we're going on about. Well, unless we're going to talk about courgettes. No, no, it's just to explain that you bring for oh, our guests. I get you. Okay, so sorry. Yeah, I made a sugar-free tablet, which you've completely ha, ha, ha. OD'd on. And I also made some rhubarb gin. And for the guests that don't enjoy a tickle, uh, and some <laughs> rhubarb cordial for whatever reason. <laughs> Why are you enduring your like that? There's a lot of our guests are sober. Um, uh, so, rhubarb <laughs> cordial, rhubarb gin. And then I thought... Um, do you know what? I've been away on holiday for mm-hmm. two consecutive weeks. What's new? <laughs> retirement, lovely retirement. Mm. And I came back to a flaming garden of monster courgettes. What, like, what were you talking? I'm talking matter size. I'm talking like people would see Small when they puppy. Caught, when people would see the catch a fish. That big, really? That big key. Really? Yes, that big. Can and you get both hands around it? I mean, if we're talking girths, uh, what would you say it was? You'd be pushing it. Really? Yeah, you would be pushing it. 
Is it the biggest one you've ever held? No. It's not? No, but for God's sake, my case is only, it's only going to take 25k. <laughs> right, so what yeah. do you think it weighs? I have no idea, actually, because I've only brought three quarters of it. Half to three quarters. And I have made... And you're trying to throw it to the Courgette soup, I've made courgette cake, I've made ratatouille, ratatouille, ratatouille. <laughs> and I'm stopping short with ice cream, and I thought, you know what? Ice cream? Could you imagine what the fuck? That would be the really uh, good book, which has got lots of weird ice creams in it. Um, and I thought, you know what? I might as well take it through, see if I can pan it off on any of the pan it off in any right. of the guests. Yeah, I, I want to know which Surrey and Rankin will be interested in a three-day-old size of a puppy with the head chopped off courgette. I don't know. Maybe he will be. Let's. We live in hope. We live in I hope. I might see the audience at the gate. <laughs> I know. Um, all right. Yeah. Anyway, we better wind up because you need I, to put some makeup oh, on. Oh, you're right. Um, and you too. I've, I've got it on. Oh, right. Um, would you do it again? Yeah. I'm going to have a wee word with Karen and Corin in the Would you? Would yes, you do it again? I would. And do you know what? Four nights next year. And do you? Oh. And I'm waiting for you to see. You can brew the guests then. You're getting into it, aren't you? Eh, I think when you put as much effort in as as I have, <laughs> then it's, yeah, yeah, you can see how people um, see how people. It's not as if it's a different show every night. Well, it is obviously a different show every night because it's different guests every night. But it's it's actually quite good fun. You've had your head turned. Retirement is going to be. <laughs> I'm having some sugar. The irony of this is just is not lost on me that this podcast was supposed oh. to be all about you convincing me to slow down, to stop working, to get a effing camper van, and all of that shit. Nordic walking. True. And now you are getting drunk on fame. <laughs> The monster's <laughs> <laughs> She's actually now tipping the remnants of the tablet into her gob. There it goes. There it goes. I'm gone. Give them a warm welcome. So Ian Rankin and Denise Myler. <laughs> Thank you so much, You're the pair of you, for joining us. We're very excited. Um, of course, you'll know Sir Ian Rankin, creator of Detective Inspector John Rebus, and books and television, and a million different things. I can't list both of your credits because there's, there's so many. Uh, Denise, creator of Paddy Meehan, uh, Fields of Blood, the Garnet Hill um, series, which started you off. So um, it's really wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, Ian, I'm thinking, though, I'm very casually calling him Ian because he is, of course, oh, Sir Ian Rankin. Uh, the investiture took place in um, June, is that right? And Recently, Buckingham? recently. I can't remember if it you, was June or July. You can't remember, you can't remember. Yeah, fairly recently. Yeah. Done at Buckhouse. Are you used to it? No, no. I mean, the, I mean in Fife, of course, I'm known as Yahoo, sir. I was, running a, I was running a 10K for charity in Italy, believe it or not, and a friend of mine who I was going with to support them got these letters to put on my shirt to say Syrian, but when you put them on, it looked like I was a Syrian refugee. <laughs> I thought, you don't want to be wearing something saying you're Syrian running through the streets of Italy. <laughs> no, you certainly do not. You certainly do not. But I'm kind of thinking in terms of our theme, how to be 60. I think you're, what, 63? 
and, and, you know, obviously very successful career, now you've been knighted. I mean, you're the poster boy for how to be 60. I mean, do you sort of sit back and think, Jesus, do you know what? I've done it. I'm, I'm made. I'm absolutely made. I've done it. I, it's kind of hard, Kay, because, I mean, I missed my 60th birthday because I was 60 during COVID. Oh, oh. So I turned 60 on the 28th of April 2020. We were in lockdown and we were allowed out for one hour's exercise a day. So I had all these huge plans for what I was going to have a whole week of celebrations and do various things with lots of friends and family. And in the end, what I did was stick a, a glass in one pocket, a can of beer in the other, run to the Oxford bar, which was locked up, stand outside it, drink a drink to myself, and then run home. <laughs> that was my one hour of exercise allowed that day. And that was it. So I don't really feel like I've hit 60. So, but you were going to celebrate. That's interesting because I did not want to celebrate. I wanted to be on the, the day. I did one wee star jump and that was it. That was enough. I was back in the house. So you were going to celebrate. Of course, Denise is looking very, you know. Mm -hmm. so she's cheating. I don't she's know what you're cheating. talking about. Smug here. Young because thing. So young. So I'm young. My baby. It's so how far away is 60 for you? Well, I'm 57 on the 21st of this month. Right, well, you're more or less 57 now. And I'm exclusively hanging about with people who are 60 so that I can feel so very young. young. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, like the, is, 57, is that early 50s or mid 50s? That's late 50s. Oh, no, I don't In think fact, so. Late kids, 50s is 59 and a it, half. It, my kid <laughs> said to me the other day, are you, to both of us, are you middle-aged? What oh. are, you, are you middle-aged? And I had to think about it and I said, we're just old, I think. <laughs> We are actually past middle age. Yeah. We are. And well, we are. Well, yeah, no, but I mean, Denise is as well. 50, I mean, I'm not going to live to be 140. <laughs> Please, no. God, it's no, interminable no. as it is. When I was uh, your just, age, just I used wait to till you get your bus pass, though. Yeah, the bus pass. Oh, what Keith's a beautiful, never, Keith never what used a beautiful thing is a bus pass. I've exactly. refused mine, not interested in having my bus pass. Please I do not applied. want documentary evidence. I don't want it. No. You can go to Inverness on it. Yeah. They call they call the 915 to Inverness from Glasgow the Penshi Chariot. <laughs> <laughs> go to Open for the day. Good things. But that but that is kind of what worries about me about it, in that am I just do you just sort of go about Scottish towns for the day and then hang around and then come back? Is that well, if you're an Edinburgh resident, Kay, you can use the trams free of charge as well. Okay. And if you happen to come from Cromarty, and you're allowed to use the uh, ferry free of charge. So right? there's all kinds of wee side benefits. She's interested, Luke. I know, I think I, she's I, interested. He's got me now, he's got me now. Yeah. But why does that give you any pleasure? I mean, with respect to you, you can afford the ferry to Cromarty and back, can you? <laughs> it's I mean, free. Really? It's free. It's the freeness it of it, is it? I, think it's, I, I mean, it's that thing that I really regret handing money over for anything. So usually in Edinburgh, <laughs> I would, you know, being a working class boy from Fife, I would think I'll just walk that. I'll, say, I'll save the pound or whatever, I'll just walk it. And then you suddenly go, hang on a minute, it's not going to cost me anything. I'll just wait at this bus stop for 30 seconds and jump on a bus. Oh, my God. Ian, can I ask, when you go into the Oxford bar, is there always a pint there waiting for you? Do you ever have to pay for it? I always have to pay for it. Yeah, I've never, I don't think, I, I might have once had a, you used to get a free drink at New Year oh. under old management. Um, no, 
No, it's quite the opposite. Folk expect me to be buying them drinks. Oh, I suppose. <laughs> you so, get so much stuff sent to you at the Oxford Bar that it probably cancels out the price of the pint because people are always sending you records and books to the Oxford Bar, aren't they? It's brilliant. It's, it's my, my post office. My wife says, where are you off to? I'm off to the post office. And I come back with a bunch of sort of parcels of books and LPs and all sorts of people have sent me to the Oxford Bar. And are they addressed to you or are they addressed to Rebus? Ian Rankin, Oxford Bar, Scotland. Right. And no, that's it, they arrived. That's pretty much all they need. That's brilliant, wow. isn't it? That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, Denise, now that you are 4017, <laughs> that's what I like. What to even is that? It's good, that, isn't it? 4017. It sounds much better. Do you think about 60 or does it still, or the aging process at all, really? Well, I thought, what do I like to see when people get older? And I like people that lean into it, to be honest with you. And I want to look a little bit haggard. I want to look as if I've had... I like how you look at you. Yeah. <laughs> looking past me, actually, oh, no, in the audience. Very much, directly at you. Very much like my friend Audrey here. And, um, and I want to look as if I've had brilliant adventures. And I want to look as if uh, I've got wrinkles. And, and I, I, you know, I look in the mirror and I worry about it. And I put on face cream and I'm always buying miracle rubbish. Have you ever read the Creme de la Mer leaflet? No. Has anyone ever read it? Though we will publish this podcast and they might sue us. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they go for it okay. anyway. When you read it, it says, basically, you mug. <laughs> <laughs> You're so paranoid about getting older because you've bought this rubbish. And it actually says it's got bits of diamonds in it. <laughs> if it had bits of diamonds in it, you'd shave your face off. <laughs> But, uh, so I want to look as if I've had a good time. I want to look as if I've just come off a, a, a round-the-world yacht. Because oh, I, I love seeing people like that, people who are really active, people who are older, people who have maybe been in a fight with a cat. That, <laughs> that's the kind of vibe I'm kind of going for. Sort of wind, sort of. Uh, yeah, a bit yeah, windburnt, windburnt, which is yes. very easy if you live in Scotland, yeah. obviously. Yes, on the East Coast, certainly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the kind of, well, it's not the funny thing at all, but I mean, obviously the two of you very, very successful crime writers, but, I mean, I know both of you through different means. You on your bike in Kelvin Grove Park in uh, Glasgow, where we both live. Um, and Denise goes through majestically. She's got one of those sit-up-and-beg bikes. She always is dressed like some uber-cool Berliner with that fabulous hair. She just always looks magnificent. Um, so we have a wee chat. We never talk about crime writing because I don't think we've ever discussed crime writing, haven't we? Um, no, no, we, we chat about other stuff. And, and Ian, we met many years ago uh, through a charity that we're both uh, involved with, weren't we? Um, so I don't associate you two with crime writing because I've never had those conversations with you. But how did you decide to be a crime writer? Uh, well, I, I, mean, I didn't really. Um, crime writing decided that I was a crime writer. I mean, I wrote a novel about a guy in Edinburgh who just happened to be a cop. But to me, it was a novel about Edinburgh. It was a kind of literary novel about Edinburgh. Um, but I, just, I thought a cop is a good character because he can get you access from the people at the very top of society to the people at the very bottom. Um, not many single characters allow you to have that um, go, go from all those places. Uh, and then I went off and did other things. I decided I was going to be John Le Carre, so I wrote a spy novel or Graham Greene or something. I wrote a big fat techno thriller thinking I was going to be the next big thriller writer in airports. And then none, none of this stuff succeeded. And my editor said, what happened to that guy Rebus? I quite liked him. And I went, well, maybe I'll do another one then. And so that was two novels. And then 
you know, I was living in London by then, so I brought him down to London so he could hate London as much as I did. Um, and that was three novels with him. And by then I thought, oh, this is a series. I didn't know I was going to write A, a series, or B, crime fiction. It's, I didn't read crime fiction when I was younger. Most crime writers I know, I don't know about you, Denise, you'll tell us this in a second, but most crime writers I know were big fans of the genre before they started writing it. But I'd never, I'd read Shaft. Right. You know, who's the black private dick who's a sex machine to all the chicks? <laughs> Shaft! Right on. Because I wasn't old enough to get in and see the movie, right? This is what got me into reading books. Was we had a flea pit cinnamon garden down called The Rex, and I was never old enough to go and see Enter the Dragon, The Exorcist, French Connection, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, even, which was a, an AA. Um, but nobody stopped me, The Godfather, but nobody stopped me reading the books. So I used to get the books out of the library, and there I read Shaft. And I read The French Connection, and I, read, you know, and I just loved stories um, from that minute on. But it's interesting then, so the character came before the crime bit then? Kind of, yeah. The fact that he was a puzzle, Rebus is a picture puzzle, and I thought, this guy is a puzzle, um, and he's a complex character that we've got to try and get to the bottom of, try and work out what makes him tick. Uh, and he's exploring Edinburgh. He's exploring Edinburgh from top to bottom. Um, so I was writing about this strange city that I'd landed up in to go to uni that I didn't really know. When I grew up in Carton Den, we didn't, I mean, there was hardly any trains at night. So you went to a gig at the Usher Hall, you had to leave before the encore to get the last train back, or else you were climbing over the fence into Princess Street Gardens and yeah. sleeping the night in Princess Street Gardens. Um, my parents didn't have a car, so it was really, we never, hardly ever came through to Edinburgh. Maybe go and see the Panto if you were lucky at Christmas. So it seemed like a really weird place to me. And being a writer from school days on, I thought, right, I'm going to make sense of this place by writing about it. And that was the start of the Rebus novels. And you've done how many? I don't know, 24. I'm on your last one at the moment. Can I tell you, who's going to die first, Rebus or Big Jer? No spoilers. You know. <laughs> no spoilers. So what about you me do? probably is the answer to that. <laughs> I, I read a quote that was attributed to you, Denise, and maybe you'll tell me whether it's true or not, but thriller writing is the job for the angry loner. Very much so. Because, like Ian's saying, you're trying to make sense of Edinburgh. Um, I think if you're... And I think it's you that said that crime fiction is the new social novel. So it used to be in the 19th century that social novels were about particular issues. People would talk about conditions in factories or whatever. And crime fiction is now, you know, where people address those kind of things. So if you're perpetually annoyed, the crime novel is for you. But I have to say, when Ian and I started, crime novels were not a big... Being a crime writer wasn't that... It it's wasn't a huge like a genre eugenics now, thing, it? was yeah. it? Do you know what I mean? It wasn't... It was kind of like a... Uh, for, I mean, for me, I wanted to write, but I thought if you write, it, it was a bit like being in a comedy band. It was like you could be a brilliant writer, but you weren't doing anything as pompous as saying, I'm, I'm going to write a, a literary novel. That wasn't really for people from our kind of background. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I remember um, writing, a, writing Garnet Hill and someone said, uh, there's a guy in Edinburgh that writes crime novels, you know? And I said, is there? Oh and God, then really I was there. Funny, eh? my, my publisher said, you know, your book's out next year. We should go to this... Crime Writers Association award ceremony. So I bought a dress <laughs> and uh, it cost 45 quid. And I went to this thing in London, I shite myself. And he won for black and blue. 
And, uh, and that was kind of the start of you being really kind of well-known. Do you know what I mean? But being a crime writer wasn't like that big of a thing then. We talk about it as a... But it's funny because if, you, if your first book is a crime novel, then you're a crime writer. But if you write literary novels and then you go on to write crime, uh, you're just a writer. But we talk about it as if it's kind of... You know, inherent. Do you know yes. what I mean? Uh -huh. Yeah. And uh, so, did you, you want to be a crime writer specifically? I mean, Ian didn't, did you? I, mean, I, I would have been any kind of writer. I mean, honestly, I just didn't really believe that I could be a writer. But I just thought I'm going to. In fact, when my first book, when I heard it was getting published, I didn't sleep for a week. Oh, <laughs> I, I read that. So I, I just sat like that. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, I didn't think about being a crime writer. I just thought it would be amazing to be a writer. I couldn't really take it in, to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't care what kind of writer. If I'd been, yeah. you know, a children's writer, I didn't really care. It was just like a writer. Because when I was, I mean, I don't know what it's like when you were growing up, but to be a writer was the biggest thing you could be. And he's grown up. Oh, it was just like you know, yeah. like I mean, it was like it was like saying I, I quite fancy being a famous movie star. <laughs> really, it yeah. felt that unattainable. Well, yeah. we, we never got access to writers. I mean, I think when I was at Beath High School in Cowden Beath, might have been one or two poets who came and talked to us, wow. the English class. That was about it. You know, I mean, I, I was long gone from Cardenden before I found out there was another writer from Cardenden called Joe Corey, a playwright um, who used to get the miners' wives to be in his plays. Um, the miners were working and the wives had a wee bit of free time. Maybe he would say, right, be in my play, be in my play. Um, and so he was from Cardenden as well. But no, I, there, were, there were no role models, I don't think. It was only when I arrived in Edinburgh that I thought maybe I should seek out other people who might want to, try, might want to be writers. Mm -hmm. And that was when I started to actually meet them. Um, but we should say, because this is about people in their 60s or later on in their lives, it's one of the few professions you can start at any age. And Any some, age. And yeah, some, yeah. in some ways, you're much better prepared for it when you're older, when you've learned a few of life's harsh lessons. So P.D. James, for example, um, didn't start writing crime novels till she was in her 40s because she couldn't take the risk. She was bringing up two daughters on her own. Her husband was in a, uh, an institution. Um, and so she eventually took a risk when she was in her 40s and became hugely successful. Other writers like Diana Athill started in her 80s, I think. Uh -huh. But so, you know, it's one of these, unlike being a rock star, yeah. mm -hmm. you can't, you know, imagine in your 60s suddenly going, I think I'll be a rock star now. Well, that might be, that might happen for the next generation, but I think particularly for women, whenever you see these, like, best 30 writers under 30, it's, you know, it's so gendered, because women tend to have a lot of caring responsibilities, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's very hard to put yourself out there, so I think a lot of women start a lot later right. in, in something as kind of self-motivated or... Um, you know, just like writing, do you know mm. what I mean? It's just like a lot of women start a lot, and people from working class backgrounds start a lot later as well mm. in writing, do you know what I mean? But you're never too late if you've got a story to tell. Mm -hmm. So what kind of life do you have then? Because we only, see, well, I'm going off on a tangent. Well, I was thinking about the period of you last night. I thought you're both very, very well known now because of your success uh, with writing. But it's an interesting kind of celebrity that you have as a writer because you talk about your books, you talk about your characters. You don't necessarily have to talk about yourself when performers always get asked about themselves, whereas you guys have got the kind of uh, profile without having to talk about yourself. Are you comfortable talking about yourself? Not really. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you're at your work. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. if people recognise you, if you're a writer, it's always quite kind of like they'll, they'll say, I know who you are and I know what job you do. And you say, oh, brilliant. And that's it. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like, um, like I, I was with Frank Skinner earlier and everybody knows everything about him. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, and so they'll ask him personal things. Whereas it's lovely being a famous writer because people are really, because we're all readers. Do you know what I mean? You meet people in that place and... Um, I don't know. It's just it's quite it's quite intimate, but at the same time, not probing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So why don't you like people knowing about you? Uh, I'm just not that interesting. Come on. <laughs> I mean, the other thing about being a writer is you can be famous but be completely invisible. I know. I mean, Dan Brown could be in this audience, and I wouldn't have a Scooby. I don't know what he looks like, or you know, um, other writers. I think he's there. I think that was. <laughs> <laughs> and um, getting tips for his next book. Um, and, and, and also writers are, are kind of usually fairly shy. I mean, we're the kind of kids who like to sit in their bedrooms when we were kids and just scribble things down, make stories up and, and have a little interior world, an imaginative world that they could control. So when I started out in this game, I was terrible at doing all this public speaking thing. But nowadays, the whole publicity machine, the promotional machine is based on you traveling around the world, standing up and talking for an hour. And, I mean, you can read from your book for a bit, but at some point you're going to have to talk about yourself and what you've been up to. You can't just talk about the book for a solid hour. Mm. Otherwise, you give the ending away. Mm. Um, so you have to... So you, we're like kind of unpaid stand-up comedians a lot of the time. I mean, we're doing almost the same, which is why I think stand-up comedians like Frank Skinner and others get on so well with, with, with crime writers or with writers per se. It's we're in a very similar game. It's would just we don't, we don't get paid for doing our stand-up. Yeah, would you think about... An autobiography? We were oh, talking about that. We just had a conversation really? about that. Yeah, I would never write a memoir. It's such a complex proposition. You're talking about, I mean, we have a really loud voice already. And you're characterising other people's experience. You're talking about your own perception of what happened. You, If anything negative happened, there are other people in that story. How are you characterising? Is that fair? Should they get a voice? I mean, it's a very complex... Do you know what I mean? And also, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but as I get older, I feel... I had terrible resentments to people when I was young. I hated nuns, right? I'm just going to put it out there. I love nuns, but then I'm stuck with the sound of music, so... Okay, trust me, they weren't all like that, okay? Yeah. But as I've got older, I've suddenly seen it from their point of view and realised that these were young women who were taken from their families and they thought they were doing a different thing than I thought they were doing. So I fundamentally changed my opinion of a situation that I had a very set opinion about when I was younger. And I think if you mellow out as you get older, and if you'd written a biography, an autobiography, you wouldn't have the space to do that because your mind would be set about that particular situation, yeah. for example. Or is it that you're exposing stuff about yourself? You're, you're opening up to your vulnerabilities. You know, you're talking about yourself. Is it that not what's expected about an autobiography? Or maybe it's not. I'm not the writer. I don't know. I mean, yeah. no, it's more, it's more complex than that, actually. Because, uh, you know, if you live in Glasgow, everybody knows your business anyway, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly. It's not like Edinburgh. It's not like Edinburgh, you know, but in Glasgow, everybody knows everything. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Do. They know who chucked you and when they chucked you and yeah, yeah. how you were crying at that party and all that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, it's, but it's just to give yourself room to change your mind about things mm-hmm. and also to mine your personal experience. Yeah. And and I've, got two, I've got two additional problems with autobiography. One is, is that I don't do anything. 
I mean, you know. Well, you do. You just, I follow you on you Twitter. Just, you just sit all year in a room. True. You sit in a room all year writing a book, and when it's finished, you go and tour with it. I mean, there's, what are you going to write about that's interesting about that? Not much. And number two is I don't remember anything. So my, and then you get another award. Because no, I've been I, all the time. I'm writing a book. My head is in the book. So all the stuff that happened to my kids the first day at school, taking them to the hospital when they got ill, I, I vaguely remember, vaguely, barely don't remember. My wife's got to say, do you remember that time when I go, no. Remember that holiday we went, no. Because my head was in a book. Here's what we'll do, right? We'll do, the Make Keith, it up. we'll do the Keith Richards method of I'll interview you for three hours and then write a 400-page biography <laughs> and you interview me for three hours. <laughs> we, could, we could do it that way, it's true. But I, the other thing is that, I've, that I tend, because when I go on stage when I'm doing a talk, I'll tell anecdotes from my writing life and the ones that work are then embroider embroider, embroider, embroider. So now I look at it and go, I don't know if that actually happened or not. Mm. How much of that story that I've been telling for the last 30 years actually happened and how much of it have I just made up? Yeah. But because I've made it up and repeated it, I now believe in it. I, I did that when I was a kid, actually. I found later on, maybe in my 20s, my diary that I'd been keeping between 14 and 15. And I found it and I looked at it and I thought that is all made up. Oh my God, is that right? Is I, that I'm in really... case anyone found it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was brought up in Grangemouth, any of us you might know in Grangemouth. There wasn't a lot happening, so I just made it up. Oh, that's fantastic. What I'm happened in the diary? What? What happened in the diary? Well, I don't know. Snops. I was out with this one and Snops. that one, and I was getting drunk, and I was doing this. And I she was joined the Cocteau the Twins. Yeah, oh, the, the Cocteau Twins. Liz was actually in my uh, the year below me at school, Liz Fraser. Ooh. So there you go, the Cocteau Funny. Twins. That is, that's absolutely right. That's the one um, thing I know about Grangemouth, right? We've ticked that off. I know. <laughs> well, also, Eric Faulkner from the Bay City Rollers. Can we throw him in as well? Yes, shang a line. So, so what, is, what has your life as a writer been? Because you're married with two kids, you've lived in France for a while. I mean, I appreciate if both of you are quite private, but what can you share of the person? Well, I mean, it's, it's a great job to have. I mean, you get paid for making shit up. That's like I me. Mean, yeah, no, honestly. But no, no, she's, she lives in the real world. But, and you can hide behind these characters and you can have huge adventures. You know, like when I was a kid and I was writing stuff down, spacemen and all the rest of it, having adventures. I do the same sort of thing and I can hide behind my characters. They can say things that I couldn't possibly say uh, in public or I'd get in trouble, but they can say it. Um, I, and I can have these huge adventures just sitting in my chair. Car chases and gunfights and all that kind of stuff, which is really exciting. Um, gunfights? Gun like well, fighting with one. Gun there's been surely. one. There's been one gunfight, I think. But then do you also get involved in real-life domesticity, being a dad, being a husband, or are you just sitting in some study well, somewhere, you know, no, but, making yeah, I, up shit? But, no, but <laughs> when, you know, in most of our younger days, when we weren't, you know, weren't making much money, my writing desk was next to the washing machine with a pulley on top of my head, you know, and I was expected to go and pick up the kids from school or do some of the cooking or do the shopping because I'm at home all day, every day. Therefore, I should be the one that does the shopping. Um... And I would get the shopping list and off I would go and I'd be like regimental. I'd get around that supermarket in 10 minutes or under, you know what I mean? Oh. And if they moved stuff, if I went for the, the cans of soup and the cans of soup were in a different part of the shop, I'd be furious. You're a nightmare. I know. It's like going Christmas shopping. I can, oh. go, I can do Christmas shopping in an afternoon. Boom, we go, right, right so I take my son, right, son, we're going to that shop, that shop, that shop, then the pub. Oh. Here we go. Yeah. What about you, Denise? How did you fit it in with real life? What is real life for you? Well, I mean, if you're self-employed, which a lot of people are now, it's quite chaotic. So you're fulfilling lots and lots of roles. Has anybody seen the TV show There's Something Wrong with Eastman or something like that, it's called? 
Yeah. There's a fantastic bit in it, and it's about a woman who is, um, she, she has her own agency, a talent agency, and she's also a kid. And she's talking to some stay-at-home mums, and she says, uh, they say, you know, we're stay-at-home mums, and she says, it's the hardest job you can do. And then in voiceover, it says, no, it's not. I've got a full-time job, and I'm looking after these kids full-time, and I have to network as a mother and look at, bring these kids up. And we're all pretending that this is the same thing and it isn't. So I think if you're working full time and raising a family and you're a woman, no offence, it is just chaos. So like you're saying you don't remember lots of your life. I don't know where I am most of the time. Do you know what I mean? I have to write things on my hand to know where the fuck I'm supposed to be. <laughs> it's interesting. I wonder how different your lives were then. So you're both writers. You're I don't both think they were that different. I think Ian wears it lighter than I do. I is just think I'm right? a bit more money because I know Ian and I know uh, how involved he was. Talk you know. shit then. Yeah. 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 Do you think it is different for a man and a woman? I mean, given you've got so many similarities in what you do professionally, etc., etc., and other aspects of your family, is it different? Well, I mean, every industry has been easier for men than women historically. Um, including publishing. I think publishing has changed a lot now. A lot of the people at the top in publishing or near the top are women. Um, But the top raft are always men. Pretty much. Yeah, always in in publishing. Yeah. Not 100%, but pretty much. I think my publisher is a woman. Yeah, anyway. I don't know because it changes a lot. It changes all the time. Um, But but it is, but you know, um, it used to be guys got got more money up front, et cetera, et cetera. Their agents could do better deals for them and stuff like that. They were always taken more seriously. Um, and yet, you know, we all know the greatest crime fiction writers have always been women, going right back to Agatha Christie and, and Ruth Rendell and P.D. James and onwards. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... I d- it was easier for me, and I've always had the support of my wife. I met her at university here in Edinburgh. I was 21, she was 22. When we met, and we'd been married 30-odd years. I'd have to think for a second if I could get you the exact uh, mileage on that. Um, uh, might even be 37, 38. Anyway, uh, but she's always had my back. You know, she said, look, just, if that's what you want to do, give it a go and do it. And when we first got married, she was the one with the job. She went out to work uh, as a civil servant. I stayed at home and tried to be a writer, unsuccessfully. But, you know, she was quite willing for me to do that. Then we moved to France, and then the kids started coming along but we were both at home. I was the breadwinner now, which was a kind of terrifying thing to be. Right, you know, the only income we had was my books. And suddenly we had two young kids in a country where I couldn't speak a language. Um, so she had to do a lot of the heavy lifting there. I was always pushing her. It was like Prince Philip and the Queen. I was always shoving her in front of me so she could do all the talking. Yeah. You know, my friend, I mean, when she got pregnant, I remember driving down to the village to buy bread and rushing in and telling the baker that my wife was ancient. <laughs> On not on sand. Oh, God. <laughs> not on sand. So, uh, yeah, that was tough. So d- did, your, did your wife do most of the, the sort of primary caring for the kids? I would say so, yeah. Although, you know, our youngest of our two was very seriously disabled. So there's quite a lot of emotional support. I mean, there was a lot of us having to prop each other up in meetings with, you know, clinicians who were trying to tell us in French what was going on with our kid. Um, and those were tough times. Those were tough times. And when one of you is low, the other one picks up, you know, just picks up the slack until you're, you're, you're on an even keel again. It's, uh, that was tough, I think. And then success came along, and success brings money, and money makes things a bit easier. Yeah. What about you, Denise? Um, 
well, Licky and, you know, I've been in a long-term relationship. I, I don't know. We don't know when we met. I think it was 1994 or something like that. But it was just a one-night stand that just kept going. <laughs> what a great life. <laughs> it was great. Actually... It is great. Oh, and, uh, I, but neither of us thought it was going to last. So we weren't like, today is the day we met. We were just kind of like, I can't quite believe we're still together. <laughs> um, but very much the same kind of relationship, very equal. Uh, both of us have always worked. Uh, you know, both of us have always taken a lot of, um, you know, really shared the childcare. And uh, I mean, just the same, really. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, but I mean, I think if you're, if you're, Everything's an adventure if the house is calm. Do you know what I mean? If you're happy enough at home, the rest of it's just a bit of an adventure and it's, does, it's not really consequential. But I mean, I think we are really lucky because I was never the breadwinner. We were both always working. Do you know? So I never had that terror. I mean, that must be really frightening to feel that everything's contingent on your income, you know? And uh, uh, I mean, there was a couple of times where books didn't do well and they were expected to do very well, did not do well you know, really strapped for cash, but just bumbling on. But we lived in a bed sit for a year. And uh, and that was great because we used to sing, do you remember that song from My Fair Lady, All I Want Is A Room Somewhere? Because like, if <laughs> we had an I argument... Want is a room somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> if we had an argument, you just had to like, it was like the Good. Blair Witch Project, you just had to storm off to the other side of the room. <laughs> having a mobile phone down it doesn't work it doesn't do you know what I mean you just had to go and sit on the other side of the room and be really angry so after that everything's a bonus <laughs> do you still worry that a book isn't going to be as successful as the last book or are you both past that stage I'm not fussed to be honest every time I've got two fussed? books out I've got two books out this month oh my right? god and uh and every book that I get out feels like um I cheated fate <laughs> because my career doesn't make any sense do you know what I mean I mean I'm doing all sorts I'm just following my nose and I haven't done a long-running series and I haven't had a massive bestseller and followed that up with a I haven't followed any of the traditional routes I've done crime fiction true crime historical you know estate books and I've loved doing and I've done comics Ian Sun comics as well and I just feel like I can't believe I'm getting away with it I just can't believe it and, uh, and, you know, don't have a mortgage. It's, do you know what I mean? It's all gravy. I just wondered how many men say, I just can't believe I'm getting away with it. Apart well, from Ian, though, I mean, I think you... Imposter syndrome. I yeah. think we've all got imposter... Especially if you come from the working class. You think, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. You know, and you think every book's the one where you're going to be found out. Or every book, this book's going to be the one that completely tanks and the publishers are just going to drop me like a hot potato and that'll be the you end of that. You still have that in your head? Oh yeah, all the time. It's like, it's like a parent who just can never stop worrying about their kids. My mother-in-law is 92, 93 and she still worries about her kids. Her kids are in her 60s and 70s, mm. but she still worries about them. Do you know my auntie Pat turned 90 and we all went out for a big meal and me and my cousins, who are all 57 up to 62, we were sitting at the children's table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. And we had a real carry-on. And one cousin had been told not to wear a necklace by his mum because it looked a bit metrosexual. <laughs> so he, he put it on halfway through the meal. And then he said to his mum, pass the bread. <laughs> He's 59. Oh, my, oh my God. God. 
So how are you both feeling then at this stage in your life? And okay, Denise, you're only 40-17. Well, I mean, I, I, as Leonard Cohen once said, I ache in the places where I used to play. So the knees are going, the hearing's going, the eyesight's going. There are grey hairs sprouting from every orifice. Um, prostate. When I, go, I used to go out for a drink with the lads and we'd talk about women and beer. Now we talk about prostate and cancer. You know what I mean? They go, what, what tablets are you on for your prostate? Oh, I'm on this. What are you on? Oh, I'm on that. Oh, right, aye. Well, so, at least you talk about it. I mean, honestly, but yeah, at least men are talking about it. I guess, yeah. I, I mean, my dad would never have talked about any yeah. of that stuff, I wouldn't have thought. And at least we're now being, we think it's okay. We mm -hmm. can talk about that stuff a bit more than we used to. But yeah, it just there's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of rubbish around we're getting older. There's a lot of it is rubbish, but a lot of it is quite positive, I think. I think older people are, are not looked down on by society the way they used to be. Um, I think there's a lot, possibly a bit more respect out there than there used to be. I don't know. Well, also interesting as a writer, because, you know, if we're going to say a pop star, like a, an older pop star, there's always a bit of snidiness about, oh my God, they're still going up there, they're strolling bones, etc., etc. Whereas with writers, it tends to go the other way, where you're kind of venerated more well, as, as your career goes on. I have to say, there is a thing about debuts and young writers. The press do love them. And sometimes, you know, you write a book and you do feel the, the vibe is very much from you again. Right. Do you know what I mean? So there is a bit of that. So how are you feeling at this stage in your life then? Strangely fantastic. Good. I stopped running and my knees feel much better. I bought an electric bike. Seen you on my that. knees feel great. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to funerals like I used to go to weddings. Not so excellent. And George Harrison, somebody was dying, and I think Ringo went to see George Harrison, and he was in hospital, and he said, you know, so-and-so died, and they were really sad because it was a really close friend. And just as he was leaving, George Harrison said to him, you're glad it's not you, though, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's honest. Do you know what I mean? And you just feel like, this is all extra time. Yep. I'm not scared anymore, uh, you know. Aren't you? No, I'm not actually. I don't know how scared I ever was. <laughs> I was always a bit mental. But, uh, but yeah, just like, I'm sure, I mean, it could all pass tomorrow, but just now, and I'm going to enjoy it. And I think as you get older, you can enjoy the day because you know the days are shorter, you know? I think you can say we're, we've been so lucky. I mean, there's better writers than me coming up and not getting a second book. Do you know what I mean? There's better writers than me coming up and they've got too many family obligations to write. You see how many pitfalls there are and what a miracle your career is and what a miracle your knees are, for example. <laughs> you know what I mean? Also, I, I was in London last weekend at a, a wedding of one of my oldest friends. I walked a five coastal path with him a couple of months ago, Jock from Cowdenbeath, getting married for the first time at 63. Oh, wow. And I just, I just thought, I thought, yeah, you know. So, yeah. yeah, so he's starting a whole new adventure. A whole new adventure at 63. Mind you, they're not going to live together. But... <laughs> Seriously? They're going, to, they're going to keep separate bank but, accounts and they're going to stay in their own flats. But, yeah, but Karen married survive. a guy who lives in Amsterdam. She lives in Partick. Oh, and wow. that's the way to do it, isn't it? But I have to say, we, as an age group, are the dominant demographic. Mm. So we may feel that we are punching through a barrier, but actually there's just loads of us. Yeah. There's loads of so them. they're going to have to cater to us. <laughs> and we are basically like the sort of demographic problem that needs solved. <laughs> you definitely don't want the 60-somethings rising up against you. Well, I know that we've got a good start here, haven't we, in this room? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Uh, listen, quickly, we're going to play, if you don't mind, a quick game of Big Six Bingo, which Karen will officiate over. So, a number from each of you between uh, 1 and 60, please. 1 and 60. Yes. 1 and 60. I want 17. 17, 1 and 7. Are you planning to downsize, Ian? Uh, we have downsized. We downsized about three years ago. All right. Um, just pre-COVID, from a, a nice big house uh, in Merkison to a wee flat in Quarter Mile. So you are where Jed is, Big Jeff. Aye. Ah, my gangster. it's I'm, all I've, coming I've, together I've followed, now. I followed my gangster around all over the place. So I went to get rid of half the books, half the LPs, half the DVDs, a ton of stuff just had to go. And is it fabulous? Uh, it's, can he, it's cathartic, because you think at least our kids don't have to do all that yep. chucking out. We've done a lot of the chucking out. Um, but very quickly it became, I became aware that there wasn't enough space in this flat. So I had to buy the flat next door as well. Oh, stop <laughs> it! Seriously! Oh my God! I think you have the same uh, dynamic as we do, which is I would chuck everything out and he would keep everything. We used to have a bit of the house uh, that was called the Cradle of Filth and it was, it was like baskets of, of stuff, like papers and empty envelopes and Twix wrappers. And because I'm getting a bit older quite often there would be bounty bar wrappers on it or under it or lying around near it. What's the association between age and bounty wrappers? Well, I thought they were fivers. Because <laughs> <laughs> they feel rubbery and they're blue and white. Do you know what I mean? So I kept, I kept oh going to pick them up and then, oh, it's a bounty wrapper, another bounty wrapper. <laughs> but it's a difficult dynamic if one of you is a chucker outer and one of you is a hoarder, isn't it? Yeah. That sounds like yeah. that's what happened there. Yeah, uh, right. Did he say the number? Is it 49 by any chance? 49. <laughs> right, let's have a look. See what 49 is. What were you wearing when you were 20? I had to change how I dressed because the Viz introduced a character called Millie Tant. I don't know if you remember that character. Millie Tant. Right. Is that a friend of Mike Hunt? I was just going to <laughs> <laughs> right, Millie Tant was like a really pedantic feminist and oh. she dressed exactly the same way that I dressed and I was a very pedantic feminist. <laughs> and she used to wear dungarees and the wee hat and tiny glasses so I had to fundamentally change the way I dressed when I was 20. <laughs> and what oh did you gosh. change it to? Uh, very long coats. You used to be able to get great second-hand military stuff. You just couldn't... Yeah, do you remember them? I mean, really heavy tweed-weighted stuff. Yeah. Really... Because I, I was a... Um, yeah, so, like, coats like that and uh, boots, DMs. Yeah, she was always cool. Look at her. You very cool. cool. Very cool. cool. Listen, we're run, we've run right out of time. Can I thank you so much? Uh, Syrian Rankin and Denise Miner. <laughs> Thank you. Don't forget your tablet. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. I hope you're not all too warm. Uh, go out there, enjoy the delights of the Edinburgh Festival and Fringe, and hopefully see you again sometime. Well, that's it. Our little Edinburgh adventure is over. Thanks to everyone who came to see us. We appreciate each and every one of you. Will we be back next year? never say never we will definitely be back next week though just me Karen and your emails so keep them coming podcast at htb60.com how is the big six going for you <laughs>